This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host and birthday boy, Kurt Wolf. Kurt, happy birthday, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for reminding me. I don't know (laughs) if that's a good thing or not. We we Uh, won't get into the numbers, but glad glad you were born so many years ago, sir. It's definitely been a ride. Same age as last year, I think. (laughs) We'll just keep a good thing going. It's good to be with you, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited. We've closed out another year of the Insecurities Podcast. Another great year. I think mm-hmm. it was our best in in many, many respects. I don't know if you want to talk about the stats at all. You always have them to hand. Uh, we, we clocked in and we've just crossed the 35,000 download mark. Thanks to many of you out there for listening and obviously our guests for, you know, promoting and and obviously coming on and being a part of the conversation. You know, Kurt, I'll speak for you and then you can confirm. We both really enjoyed kind of this journey over the past two years, you know, starting in in January 2020, you know, coming all the way here to to January of 23. Uh, It's definitely been a fun ride uh, with some bumps along the way, but something I think we've learned from and, and really had a good time making. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I really am just excited to kick off another year of the Insecurities Podcast with you, buddy. You got it. Same. And, and I know we've got a lot of exciting programming coming up here in the early part of 2023, but we wanted to, to take some time and, and maybe look back and also kind of pat ourselves on the back for some of the episodes and topics that we've covered in 2022. You know, Kurt, we often talk about our episodes as, as being either timely or timeless. You know, something just happened in the news or, or some event, uh, you know, some sweep has occurred. Let's discuss it or let's talk about some of those tried and true things that will be be ever current, you know, going forward for our profession. And and today we're going to actually take a look at some of those discussions we had in 2022 that that continue to drive the conversation and maybe even will will indicate some of the ways that things are, are going to move forward here in 23. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be fun to to take a quick look back at some of those conversations that we think are are maybe timeless. You have a note for me here in our show notes that That's I'm supposed right. to say the entire accounting summer school will be in the timeless bucket. Did timeless. I get that right? Timeless. Yeah, timeless. That's right. Timeless Debits bucket. on the left and credits on the right, Kurt. Since the Middle Ages. <laughs> exactly. It actually was a lot of fun doing the accounting summer school, but we had a ton of good programming last year. You know, just a few. We had Jesse Isinger, a senior editor at ProPublica, who came on to talk about regulatory enforcement and his role on the HBO hit show Succession. We had Lucas Moskovitz from Robinhood, Finner's deputy head of enforcement, Chris Kelly, the CEO of the MSRB, Mark Kim, Kirsten Wegner, the CEO of Modern Markets, Micah Houtman from the Consumer Federation of America, Newt Rostad, the founder of the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, Tom Hood, who's an executive VP at the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants. That's one of the AICPAs. Right. Of course, we recently talked with Tom Sporkin, who runs enforcement over at CFP Board. We had legal industry influencer and social media star Alex Sue, Mark Sheff, a senior reporter at Investment News. We talked Ponzi schemes with our friend Jordan Maglich. We talked socks with UCA law professor Jim Park. We had a couple chats with Stone Turn partner Howard Check, and of course, we took time out to chat with our good friend, friend of the podcast, George Wilson. So, I mean, it was a heck of a year. For anybody listening, just go back through the catalog. 2022 was amazing. 
It's it's true, and I counted 27 episodes last year, which both sounds like a lot, and and, and like we could probably do more, Kurt. So maybe we'll challenge to to, to click up to 28 <laughs> here in in 2023. But we're going to transition now into revisiting some of our our favorite episodes and those that will really frame the conversation of the Insecurities Podcast in 2023. All right, Kurt, I'd like to start us off with a look back early in the year at episode 59. And for those of you following along, we are ordering these in the way they have been released in 2022. We are not playing favorites with our favorite (laughs) episodes up front here. Episode 59 hits on a recurring theme here that we talk about in the Insecurities Podcast, and that is the changes in the SEC's Division of Enforcement. Mm -hmm. Kurt, that's really kind of, you know, the bread and butter for what we like to share. And on episode 59, we had former director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, Stephanie Avakian, now the chair of Wilmer Hale's Securities and Financial Services Group. And we asked her if she had observed any noteworthy changes at the SEC and in the Division of Enforcement in particular. The new enforcement director, who's not so new anymore, Gerbeer Graywall, who's now been there probably half a year or close to half a year, is a longtime prosecutor. He's been, you know, he was most recently, obviously, the attorney general for the state of New Jersey. And, you know, before that, served as a federal prosecutor in two districts. He served as a county prosecutor. And so he's really got a very long history as a prosecutor. As a very thoughtful lawyer, you know, I I think he has been and we will see him continue to be a very strong leader for the division. You know, what's noteworthy? What are noteworthy changes? I don't, you know, hasn't really been long enough to see changes. I think what we look at, right, is what is what are they telling us out of the division? And Gerbeer, to his credit, has been doing a fair amount of public speaking in the last couple months, which I think is great. I think it's important for people who lead important divisions at the SEC and across the government to go out and tell us what they think and what they're focused on and and what's important to them. And so, you know, what has Grabeer been talking about? I put it in some broad categories. He has given a number of, of sets of remarks, both speeches, you know, but also he's done a lot of speaking, you know, in panels and the like. You know, he's spoken a lot about corporate responsibility and the expectations that the SEC and the Division of Enforcement have on corporations. I think one of the things that's been interesting that he's talked about is this notion of proactive compliance. And it's not just about checking all the boxes and saying you have policies and procedures to address the issues. It's about, as a business, taking a step back and assessing your business, the risks to your business, and adapting your compliance policies and procedures to meet those risks. And I think that's, you know, he's telling corporate America something there. You know, he's also talked about timely disclosure, obviously has talked about things like preservation, particularly in the course of investigations. And that's, you know, look, the SEC brought a a big case against a financial institution in the last couple, in the last month or so for failing to retain text messages that happened off of regular, off-channel communications, right? They weren't on the company's regular email system or text system. And, and that's obviously been a big thing. So he's talked about, you know, the requirement to preserve records, particularly when there's a government investigation. So that's what I'd say, you know, he's sort of talked about big picture in the corporate context. He's also talked about cooperation for corporations, which I'll come back to in a second, because I kind of put that under a second heading or topic that he's been talking about, which I I think is going to be an interesting one to watch and see how it develops. So when we talk about changes, 
I don't know if it's a change. We'll see over time. But one of the things he's talked about and his deputy, Sanjay Wadwa, has talked about is this notion of doing more to empower the staff. And what Grabeer has said, at least he means in part by that, is pushing more substantive decision-making down to the staff. And some of the examples I think we've seen him talk about are things like evaluation of cooperation by companies, right? And how that cooperation will be credited in the context of a resolution. And he has said, frontline staff, regional office supervisors are in the best position to evaluate the nature and quality of the cooperation. Similarly, he's talked about the Wells process and he's talked about defense lawyers should not in all circumstances expect to get a front office Wells meeting. You should not necessarily assume you were going to get a Wells meeting with the director with the deputy director, we think that frontline staff are often in the better position to assess and evaluate the recommendations that go to the commission. So we see this coming up in a couple of places. So I think that's an area to watch. And then I say the other big thing he has talked about is penalties. And and these these themes keep coming back to court cases against companies or entities. And so he's talked about penalties. And he's talked in particular about looking at issues like recidivism when determining what a penalty recommendation to the commission ought to be. I think we don't know what that means yet, right? Like is recidivism, you have a long regulatory history or is recidivism, you have done this same thing before? Is it something in the middle? I don't think we really know, but he has talked about the notion that, you know, it may be that in some cases prior penalties have not been enough to deter future misconduct. So those are, are they changes? I don't know. I think we're going to all sit back and we're going to see how it unfolds. We're going to see it through the enforcement actions. All right. So, Chris, I think it's a great clip. It was actually pretty remarkable how how spot on she was. Maybe yeah. it shouldn't be remarkable remarkable because it's Stephanie Avagan. She's right? in but, the know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> some of the things that she was talking about are things that we're still very much talking about today, things that we've heard Director Graywall talk about in recent speeches. You know, for example, this concept of proactive compliance. You know, companies or registrants need to be doing things in advance. Don't just wait for the SEC to show up. Don't just wait for the exams team to tell you that here's a problem that many people are facing in the industry. You've got to get out there and do a good job. She talked a little bit about cooperation, which again is something that that we hear about. I mean, recently we heard from the director of enforcement who said, look, in appropriate cases, we give a lot of credit for cooperation. Sometimes we won't bring an action or we won't require, you know, a company to pay any kind of penalty whatsoever. So it's it's something that's still out there. <laughs> Wells meetings, it's like the thing you just can't get away <laughs> that's from. That's right. You know, will they do them? Will they not do them? I mean, again, the, the director has talked about this a couple times this fall, actually, and said, we're still doing them. It's not appropriate in every case. And that's sort of the line. I, I still think people are getting their head a little bit around the concept that that might not always be something waiting for you. But they're sort of sticking to their guns, saying this is the way we're going to do it. And when it's appropriate, we will absolutely take the meeting. You know, another point that Stephanie brought up has to do with penalties. And it's been a big topic of conversation in recent weeks, you know, SEC Enforcement Director Graywall gave a speech about a month and a half ago where he talked about the deterrent effect of penalties and how the SEC is really thinking about ratcheting up penalties in certain cases. I think they were talking about, you know, maybe doing a 2x the amount the ratio, of disgorgement. Right, right yeah. exactly. So it continues to be a big talking point. Stephanie, again, spot on in bringing that up. And the last thing that I'll mention is just the text messages. It used to be a big talking point. We've seen 
at least one really splashy headline in the mm-hmm. last several months about text messages. Absolutely still something that I know the SEC and DOJ are focusing on and that we hear about from time to time, talking with you know other practitioners and maybe even some clients. So, you know, as expected, Stephanie Avakian gave us a great look around the corner at some of the changes in the enforcement landscape that we need to be focusing on. Yeah, I don't know if this is one of those issues, Kurt, where art imitates life or life imitates art. But when you when you publish a podcast episode on February 10th of 2022, and we're hitting on all of the big rocks that are reflected in the conferences, as well as some of the enforcement actions and discussion points later in the year. I guess the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I don't know. I've got some more art metaphors we could use, but we'll save those for later guests. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think we're just, we're really driving the conversation here at the Insecurities Podcast. That's absolutely oh God. what's going on. <laughs> Look out. If that's what's really going on, Kurt, we're in trouble. Yeah. All right, so let's flash forward a little bit to another episode that we want to highlight from last year, episode 62. We had Carla Caravo, who is the chief legal officer of CoinList, and my friend and colleague, Michael Liftick, who is a securities regulatory and enforcement partner here at Quinn Emanuel. They talked to us about the crypto regulatory landscape. Obviously, everything digital assets, digital assets, securities, cryptocurrencies, sort of pick your favorite term of art. It's big in the news right now. I think it's going to be for the next little while while some things shake out on the Hill and elsewhere. But one of the things that we talked about with Carla and Michael was this sort of jockeying for position among some of the different regulators in D.C. You know, the alphabet soup here is trying to figure out who's going to gobble up the, the crypto industry or some of those digital assets. So let's hear a little bit about what they had to say regarding those regulators trying to figure out who is going to regulate crypto. At some point, is it too much, right? If we've got the CFPB and the FTC and the SEC and the CFTC and the FDIC, and they're all coming in and potentially putting out their own guidance or rules, when when is it too much regulation? It's too much right now because there's no clarity, right? I have to kind of always figure out you know, am I more in the SEC space? Am I more in the CFTC space? Which space am I in? Or, you know, do I just want to jump shore altogether? Yeah, the, it, there's too much right now because it's so unclear. I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to be operating under. In my perfect world, and, you know, we might get to this later, but in my perfect world, it's the CFTC that kind of takes hold of this area. We already operate under their regime. I think, you know, they've been very intentional and deliberate about the enforcement actions they're bringing for just, you know, very egregious type of activities. And, you know, Michael maybe has a different view or or I'd like to hear his view on that. But they feel like an agency that we in the industry could work with. So even if it's some kind of like light touch registration regime for the CFTC, I'd love to see that happen. And again, it's not that we oppose regulation, but the way that it's happening right now isn't working. Michael, what's your reaction to that? Or what's your view on kind of getting the right touch from a regulatory standpoint? Yeah, I mean, the the challenges that Carla's describing obviously are not unique to her business. It's something that we hear across our client base. Chair Gensler came out this fall in in a at an event of securities professionals, SEC enforcement lawyers, and, and criticized the SEC defense bar by saying, you know, do not enable these various platforms to exist outside of the regulatory regime. You should be counseling companies to come in. You should be counseling companies to come in and talk to us and they need to come in and register and then everything will be hunky dory. I don't think that was a very fair criticism to level against the bar 
But I also think it's not recognizing the challenges that Carl is talking about that we hear from lots of participants in the market. They're, they are clamoring for clarity. I, I don't think you know, market participants are looking for sort of an exhaustively overly constrictive regulatory regime. But at the same time, I can't think of a client who says, I think this should be completely unregulated. I should be beholden to nobody. And, and there is no role for regulation. That, that's not what's going on. What you have are businesses that have really novel, exciting projects that want to do things the right way and, and would like that, but they need to know who their regulator is, what the expectations are, where are the lines in which they're operating. And Carla mentioned that the startup culture, if you want to start up a social media company, you can do it tomorrow in your basement. And as we're obviously learning, social media can be extremely harmful in, in some cases, and there's no regulation o- over that. But yet, you know, the, 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 the pro- promise of digital assets from a, whether it's a financial inclusion or speeding payment rails or, or any number of potential areas is enormous. And yes, it's, it involves money at its base. So it does need to be regulated, but the regulation needs to be sort of within the context that allows these companies to flourish and grow. Well, Kurt, uh, contrary to what we might have heard from Stephanie Avakian about enforcement activity in 2022, I think Carla and Michael did a great job of considering where things might be, you know, throughout the year of 2022 from a crypto perspective. But obviously, after the beginning of November, it's been a much different landscape in terms of the focus and the ideas around who should regulate, how regulation should happen, and, and what the messages is what the messages are in the market around crypto. You know, one of the themes we've talked about and and Michael and Carla just hit on is that kind of lack of clarity around who should be regulating. You know, you kicked it off with kind of the the laundry list of terms about crypto, right? Digital assets, digital asset securities. There's obviously a word there that means a little bit different to different folks. And I think if we've seen any kind of change since the podcast came out, it's really the collaboration between the CFTC and the SEC around messaging, as well as the SEC pushing forward to really be the leader, you know, the the self-termed leader in the crypto space, creating that term digital asset securities around how regulation should go and and really making investor protection a significant portion of their focus. I don't know, Kurt, what did you think about the the timeliness of their, their comments and where we are today? Yeah, I mean, I think that they were asking or, or sort of hinting at the same questions we're asking today in terms of you know, first, who is the regulator that ultimately is going to own this space? The SEC clearly, you know, Chair Gensler clearly, they're trying to take some ownership for, you know, the digital asset space, but maybe that's not where it lands at the end of the day, or or maybe they're going to have to share more with some of the other regulators. I, I think, you know, there's this enduring question about if or when we're going to get some kind of meaningful guidance mm-hmm. from the commission on things like what is a security, which platforms have to register. The SEC, of course, will tell you they've given tons of guidance and they'll point to the Dow report and they'll point to a litany of SEC enforcement actions. I think the industry would disagree, right? That that that's sufficient guidance to really help them answer some difficult questions out there. Look, their comments right in line with, I think, where we still are. And we're, we're gonna have to see what happens, you know, over the next year or so. Maybe we'll get an answer from the Hill I don't know. I don't know if we should ever count on that, but it, it's possible. We, we've joked in the past, too, about the timeline for crypto news and, and, and churn and activity is, is much shorter, right? So we're talking, what, eight months on 
Carla and Michael mm-hmm. were, were cognizant enough to, to think about where we might be when, you know, crypto changes almost on a weekly basis in terms of what the focus and the ideas are. So kudos to, to two of our great guests as well as, you know, something that I think we'll be talking about a lot here in early 2023, if not much longer into the year. Yep. All right, moving right along, another topic that we've talked a lot about here on the podcast in several different contexts, and that's really sort of market structure. You know, we've talked about it with with John Ramsey, and we've talked about it with Lucas Moskowitz, and, and just a, t- a bunch of people over the over yeah. the years. We've talked about things like payment for order flow and best execution, and we were fortunate on episode seventy eight to have Jim Toes, who's the CEO of the Security. Traders Association, which you know our listeners will recall is a grassroots trade organization which serves individuals employed in the financial services industry. And he came to talk to us after the STA's annual conference about some of the, the key themes that ran through you know their panelists' remarks that week and looking forward to some potential SEC rulemaking. One of the things that he talked about was best execution, and the possibility that the SEC would introduce new rules that could require auctions when when retail orders sort of flow into the market. We've actually seen a rulemaking proposal mm-hmm. along those lines in recent weeks that's getting a lot of press, a lot of attention from the industry. But let's pause and let's listen to what Jim had to say about best execution and SEC rulemaking. And with the the discussion of best execution at the conference last week, uh, you know, the potential for auctions and, you know, the downstream effects of that and how retail investors may be a little bit confused or, you know, hear the phrase best execution. And that can mean something different to a lot of people. So enlighten us a bit about how that conversation went at the conference last week, Jim. So, so you, you kind of touch on two areas that, that um, you know, that enlightened me during it. Right. Right. So I, I did. So. The topic of best execution came up. We already have an existing standard that that Finra is that that Finra owns, and and they do modify it as as markets changed. It's always going to be, I, I think, about just providing information for investors. But it is disappointing when we think about how much work we all put in for filling out those reports. And putting them out there in the public domain, and how little retail investors engage with it, I, it, it is that's a little disappointing because we, we still believe in, in putting the information together mm-hmm. and putting it out there in the public domain. But at the end of the day, the retail investors, what the, I think, what they're looking at these self-directed ones, they look they're looking at a price on a screen. They like the price on the screen. They hit a button and they're executing their trade at or near or in between the price on the screen, and they're happy with it. Yeah. So they don't really see it. And and another thing too is like sometimes the execution. This is another thing that kind of gets lost in 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 the, in the conversation, is that the relationship that the retail investor has with that self-directed platform, it's it's much broader than just the the buying of ten shares of Tesla. There are other things that these broker dealers are providing. So. They're looking at it from the perspective of like this, and you know this investor experience with the entire with the entire firm on it. So I think that's you know it is it is. Uh, I think we're providing a lot of information out there as an industry. Wish the retail investors would take more um, advantage of it, but at the end of the day, they they seem pretty happy with that. They're seeing a price and, and they're getting it on the screen. The one thing you did touch on was was auctions and and as far as the equity markets and and I think the part that wrong that really 
that resonated with me is that, and it should resonate with all of us, is that whenever we have these conversations in equity market structure around PFOF or, you know, self-directed investors, it, it, it only gets kind of held from the perspective of like a Robin Hood and Citadel mm-hmm. and or Schwab and Virtu. And and I think what, what what is getting lost here is that every major broker dealer has a self-directed product offering that they offer to their to their clients. I have an my account is at Bank of America and I have you know I have my financial advisor and I have my self-directed platform that's available to me. And when Doug Sifu said that there are 240 to 250 broker dealers who are sending their self-directed order flow to Virtu for an execution Regulators need to listen to that because this this conversation is so much bigger than just Robinhood and Citadel. All right. So when you start bringing in a new way of executing a trade, like via, like I know this term auctions keeps getting you know, order by order competition through an auction mechanism. Those other firms, you've got to be thinking about it from the perspective of like that self-directed investor, like Jimmy Toes, who has an account at Bank America. And how's that going to what's that going to look like and what type of reaction are you going to get from Bank America? You know, but those firms that they're, they're sending orders to Virtu and, and firms like those internalized, it's a huge transfer of risk. Once once they send the order over there, that the, you know their risk is is off their books, and it's also you know very cost effective for them. If you start changing how orders are handled, and now you change that that relationship between the order entry firm and the order execution firm, and now that order entry firm is now going to either have to a take on more risk because they're going to have to make more de- a decision or they're going to have to take on more cost by connecting directly to those venues. It's going to be, I, I just, I just hope that they appreciate that because it, it's, it's not going to get the response that they're hoping for. Kurt, one of the things that sticks with me is really kind of Jim's comment about how, although this can seem as an opaque issue, right? Best execution sounds simple, but it's hard to, to perform under. And, and really Jim talked about how firms have done a lot of work to put out information about what best mm-hmm. execution means. And, you know, he focused in really on retail investors. You know, when when you or I, Kurt, if we are to to trade on our own, the, that self-directed investor, that ability to educate ourselves about the different types of pricing and how that price on the screen may represent one of many different ideas. Firms are doing a lot of work to make sure that folks are educated. And obviously those practicing in the industry have a very good knowledge of this. But I think if, if folks can see something that is at or near a price that they seem reasonable with, generally speaking, they're going to be okay with it. And I think Jim, that's kind of the, the point that Jim hammered home is that this is not a, a gotcha game around, you know, fractions of a penny for individuals. This is much more of, of, am I operating in the way that I think that I should be in the market? Am I getting a price that I think is reasonable to get there? But I don't want to stop some of the, the conversation, Kurt. I know you want to jump in on regarding the recent <laughs> developments in rulemaking around Best X and some of the ideas that have floated in the past couple months since we spoke to Jim back in October. Yeah, I mean, obviously his comments on on the rulemaking at the time it was potential rulemaking were really interesting. I think, you know, folks in the industry had an idea where this was going, that the SEC was going to propose some rules around best execution that they might include, you know, in concept, some kind of auction in order to, in theory, make sure that retail investors are getting the best price. Again, I, I agree with you. I think generally self-directed investors, they log into their account, they see a price on the screen. If they're happy with that price, and they think they can get it or pretty close, most people go home 
happy. Doesn't mean everybody does. Doesn't mean that there's not a, a price out there that that's maybe fractionally better. But I think Jim's point was when the regulators tend to talk about this, they're thinking about one of a few really big names that that tend to have most of the order flow in the industry. But there are a ton. There are potentially hundreds of players out there. You know, virtually every financial institution that does wealth management has some version of a self-directed platform where retail investors can go and place orders. And by imposing a new system, what they're going to do is potentially insert more risk in the process, potentially insert significant more costs in the process. And so it's something that I think the commission is going to have to think carefully about as they move toward a final rule, as they start digesting the comments that are going to come in, you know, like while the folks at DERA are doing their their yep. job to figure out <laughs> the cost-benefit analysis of a new rulemaking. So it's going to be interesting to follow going forward. No predictions for me on where this is oh, going to come land. Oh, Kurt. But, but it's going to be something <laughs> that we keep talking about, which is That's why... Right. It's among the episodes we wanted to flag today. I was going to say, prediction for 2023, we talk about a final rule in whatever form it takes maybe in the next few months. <laughs> no, I've learned my lesson. I'm steering clear of predictions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kurt, I want to touch on an episode that's near and dear to my heart. Obviously, we joked about how accounting summer school is timeless, but we had a conversation with Matt Jakes, a Managing Director at Alex Partners, uh, the most recent SEC Chief Enforcement Accountant, about a whole host of issues going on in the accounting world. Today, we talked about revenue recognition. We talked about issues in the accounting profession as they're changing, as well as some recent themes in enforcement and, and where the the new Chief Accountant, Ryan Wolf, may be taking the SEC's accounting-focused cases in the months and years to come. But one of the things that we talked about with Matt was really kind of the changing landscape in the accounting world mm -hmm. as large accounting firms consider their position in the market as audit firms and as tax and advisory firms. Obviously, one of the big four is currently considering spinning off their audit function and, and creating two separate firms for a variety of reasons that our listeners are probably well aware of. But we spoke with Matt a bit about that kind of gatekeeper issue from the SEC's perspective as it relates to independence for audit firms, as well as consulting businesses across the globe. Kurt, you know, on this on this podcast, I always, you know, take a deep breath when someone from the commission mentions gatekeepers, and it is not just related to my one of my favorite movies, Ghostbusters, featuring Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis as those interdimensional gatekeepers. Usually it refers to the role of auditors and advisors, and that has been a repeat topic for speakers from the commission in recent years. Auditor independence has been top of mind for you, Matt, and I love a comment that you gave a couple of years ago regarding accounting and auditing firms explaining their independence, and I'll read your quote here. Quote, creativity is generally encouraged in life. Accounting and auditing are often not the best places for creative thinking, and auditor independence is certainly not a place to creatively apply the rules or push the limits of the rules, end quote. Matt, share with us your take on auditor independence in light of the sea change currently being debated, especially with some of the large firms considering dividing up their, their audit functions from their tax and consulting practices. So you guys are, you guys keep hitting me with some really big topic areas. <laughs> That's that, right. That I'm sure we could, this was, this it's one. It's final boss to, stuff, Matt. We might be able to break this one off into a series of episodes if, if we really wanted to. And I'm actually most impressed you kept notes of one of my panels. Thank you. And, and look, this is just another one of the areas that the staff have put out statements on, starting with the June 2020 CA Paul Munter statement, and then followed by a statement on alternative practice structures in August. And 
in all the panels and public events that I did in the chief accountant role, auditor independence probably made it into every single one. And that's because of its importance. The independent auditor, it's, it's, it's the foundational piece of our financial reporting regime and, and really our financial regulatory system in, in a number of ways. To your question about what some of the transactions we have read about might mean for independence, that question is, is top of mind for regulators. I, I think we can confirm that with the August alternative practice structure statement. But you know who else it's top of mind for? The auditors. And I know from personal experience, having been an auditor, working with audit firms in various capacities now, nobody wants to get auditor independence right more than the audit partner signing an audit opinion. So look, it's gonna be interesting to see how the industry reorganizes itself, if, if it does at all, and what impact that might have on these independence questions. But I, look, I take a lot of comfort knowing that it is getting attention inside and outside those audit firms. You know, Chris, I remember when we when we recorded this, you made a joke that anytime the SEC brings up gatekeepers, you get a little bit nervous. Still so do. You, <laughs> you just said I got to chill when you said it. You were, you were brave to throw it in here. I have to say, <laughs> I've been feeling the same way because there have been a couple speeches from Chair Gensler and Director Graywall in recent months where they're talking about lawyers as gatekeepers, specifically in the crypto industry. But I'm feeling your pain, buddy. <laughs> Look, I think a couple things that Matt talked about are are critically important. I mean, one, it, first and foremost, he's right. Auditor independence is a foundational piece of our financial system, our capital markets. We have to protect that. You know, investors rely on it. The markets rely on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the piece he said sort of at the end that goes along with that is, you know, nobody wants to get auditor independence right more than the partner signing an audit opinion. Yeah. So, uh, look, I think it's easy to, to cast stones, maybe if all you're doing is, is sort of looking at the industry and saying, oh, look, there, there may be tons of problems there. But at the end of the day, I do think folks are trying to get this right, whether that's through changing the shape of their firm or, or the way that they separate different work streams, or just making sure that the, the folks who are signing those letters really are minding their P's and Q's, that they're getting the auditor independence issues right. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm with you. You know, if you're the gatekeeper, I'm, I'm here to protect you, buddy. No, well, that's the thing, right? Is it's, it's a reputational and, and, a, and a professional issue, you know, and that's why folks like us spend so much time working hard for our clients and on behalf of them to, to make sure we get things right. You know, I don't believe that there's a whole host of, of gatekeepers out there, you know, purposefully skirting the rules, maybe one or yeah. two, you know, bad actors right. are going to exist. But the profession itself, I know from the accounting side and, and from what I know of the legal side is is hyper-focused on getting this right and and representing itself in the appropriate way around a gatekeeper. I could read you the, you know, the, the chapter and verse on what an audit is and what an audit isn't, <laughs> but that should be clear in the market and, and auditors are working hard to make that happen. And I know legal advice, uh, you know, goes under the same scrutiny internally before it's ever, you know, presented in a, in a rep letter or legal opinion on behalf of a client. So uh, maybe we're biased towards gatekeepers, Kurt, you know, in the seats that we sit in. <laughs> you know, gatekeeper. I think that's right. We, we, we feel that, uh, you know, these folks are working hard to do it. And, and I think Matt's right that, uh, you know, that signed partner and, and that firm that's representing itself is conducting the audit, uh, you know, within all of the, the guidance and standards is appropriate, is doing its best to be there. And, you know, there will always be cases of, of you know, auditor issues going forward. There have been since audits, you know, first started uh, back in the early 1900s. So it's not something we're going to fix here on this podcast or, or won't see in 2023. But I think the focus on that issue as the accounting landscape is changing is going to be an interesting one to follow and probably something we're going to talk about again. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you snuck a little bit more auditor and accounting stuff into <laughs> into our wrap-up podcast here. It's appropriate it. considering we spent so many episodes focusing on it last year. But look, it's been a lot of fun revisiting some of those episodes with you. I'm glad that we, we focused on issues that are sort of enduring, things that mm-hmm. we're still talking about. And I think it just shows, you know, I said it up top, but last year was really a great year for the podcast. A lot of fun for us. No, it's been it's been a, a whirlwind and and also a, a, a great time and putting together a lot of great episodes. Uh, you know, we appreciate all of you listeners out there who who continually get the ping on your phone when a new episode's released and, and you know send us comments via social media or or email or text messaging, letting us know how great the episode is or how you wish I would have said something different. Uh, mainly that's Kurt just texting me on the side. But uh, no, right. I'm excited for 2023. You know, we're in the throes of busy season right now here in early January. My mm-hmm. my accounting friends out there are grinding away. And some of those tough issues, uh, but I think it's going to be an, an exciting year to follow and, and keep sharing good stories with you, Kurt, about, uh, about where we're going in this industry. Yeah. Cheers to 2023. Thanks for joining this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag Insecurities Pod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.